I think that covers the announcements, but I do want to say a few words about our speaker tonight. Many of you know him. Many of you had him as a professor or have rubbed shoulders with him as a fellow presbyter. Uh, Dr. Michael Morales is professor of biblical studies at the seminary. He's been in that position since 2014. As you know, he's the author of a number of books, many of which I think you will be familiar with, including Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, A Biblical Theology of the Book of Leviticus, David's Son and David's Lord, Christology for God's People, Exodus Old and New. He's currently working on a commentary, a larger commentary on the book of Numbers. And so it is a delight to call him a colleague and a friend. He really uh, is a tremendous personal encouragement to me, and I know a model to so many of us. So I look forward to sitting under his ministry this evening and commend his message to you. Let's stand. We're going to sing two psalms. The first is 128, setting A, and then we'll pause in the middle and sing 103, C. Sing together Psalm 103, setting C.
pray together. Oh, our great God, we thank you for gathering us together this evening to sit under the teaching of your word. We do echo the words which we just sang, that your faithfulness, your steadfast kindness is great towards us in Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins, for the hope for the future that we have in him, and for the ministry of your spirit even now. Father, as we now hear from your word, we do ask that your spirit would continue to be at work in our midst, teaching and training, instructing us, convicting us of sin. Father, we ask all of this in the name of your son, our great high priest. Amen. Amen. Please remain standing. I'm going to read the text for this evening. It's from Numbers chapter 6. I'll read the first 21 verses of this chapter. Numbers 6, 1 through 21. Remember, as I read, as you follow along and listen, this is the word of God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. And if any man dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. On the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned by reason of the dead body. And he shall consecrate his head that same day and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation and bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering. But the previous period shall be void because his separation was defiled. And this is the law for the Nazarite when the time of his separation has been completed. He shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting and he shall bring his gift to the Lord one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offering and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering, and he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord, 
with the basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall offer also its grain offering and its drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it is boiled and one unleavened loaf out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved the hair of his consecration. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are a holy portion for the priest, together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite. But if he vows an offering to the Lord above his Nazarite vow, as he can afford, in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do in addition to the law of the Nazarite. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our blessed and holy God, our Heavenly Father, you are indeed long-suffering, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, full of mercy toward your people. And we do pray now, our great God, that you would send your Holy Spirit, that you would grant us eyes to see you and the matchless perfections of your character and being, your everlasting love. And we pray that you would grant us to see the Lord Jesus Christ and the beauty of his all-sufficiency for us. And so, God, we pray that you would help us. We are weak and needy. Uphold us by your spirit and cause your words to us to be a delight this night, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In his devotional classic, Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, the book on loving God, he responds to two questions. Why and how should God be loved? And as to why God should be loved, he says God should be loved for himself. There is no object worthy of our affection as God, and there is no object which can be loved with greater benefit than God. And as to how God is to be loved, he writes, God is to be loved without limit. And in many ways, the message of his book on loving God is the same message of the Nazarite vow for us this evening. That God is worthy of all of our affections, all of our lives. And that we should be consecrated to live unto him in this fleeting, passing age. John Calvin wrote that God's particular glory shone upon the Nazarites. He said the Nazarites were as standard bearers 
to awaken the zeal of the people of God to serve God in greater capacities. In many ways, in our experience, missionaries fill that role from time to time. Have you ever been challenged by meeting a missionary and hearing his story? How they were willing to give up everything, leave the comforts of their life and culture, and go to another place, a place of hardship, to sweat and struggle to learn a language, often under the threat of persecution. And not only to bring the gospel of salvation to the nations, but oh, that God would be loved, adored, and worshipped by every nation and tongue and tribe. And again, in a very similar way, Yahweh gave the Nazarite vow to inspire Israel to live a life of consecration, to fulfill their calling to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. But within the book of Numbers, we'll see that there's a very particular application. And this is really the focus, uh, the gist of our message. Uh, Of course, we'll apply it to our own context. But the Nazarite vow was intended by God for Israel's consecration, particularly during the wilderness sojourn. And that's what we'll see in the book of Numbers. And so to understand the Nazarite vow, we're going to look first at the way of the Nazarite, then the worship of the Nazarite, and then we will turn our focus to the wilderness sojourn of Israel as they made their trek uh, through the wilderness to the land of Canaan. And as we consider these things, may God grip and claim your heart tonight. May even as we consider the Nazarite vow, they be as standard bearers before the people of God today to awaken your zeal, to live a life of consecration during your life's journey tonight, that we, the people of God, would also fulfill our calling to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And so we begin first by looking at the way of the Nazarite. It's really the first 12 verses of Numbers chapter 6. And in those opening verses, we see that the Lord invites the Israelites, any, which means every Israelite, whether man or woman, to be consecrated and to take what what literally is a wondrous or extraordinary vow, a vow defined as the vow of the Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. There's something of a play on words there because the, the root for Nazarite means separation. So It's a vow of separation to separate oneself unto the Lord. And that separation uh, has affinity and overlap with the concept of holiness. We read in verse 8 that all the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Now that separation is threefold, and we'll look at that first. The way of the Nazarite includes three abstentions or three separations. The first one, verses 3 and 4, the Nazarite must abstain from wine and strong drink and really any product derived from the grape. As we know from the Bible, Psalm 104, wine makes the heart glad and represents the joys of this life. And so separation from wine represents the separation from the great joys of this life. It signifies the Nazarite's narrow focus that he's going to seek rather the joys of knowing God above all the pleasures of this age and this life. And so this vow creates a spiritual distance. For example, the Nazarite can attend a wedding, but when he's not allowed to partake of wine 
uh, that means that he or she is, are not fully engaged, participating in the enjoyment of that occasion. And this, again, is for a limited period of consecration. The highs of our lives are set within the broader context and subsumed under the greater pursuit of knowing God and being more fully consecrated unto him. The second abstention is that the Nazarite must refrain from shearing his head. That is verse 5. And just now I can hear one of our delightful students asking me if I have broken my vow. Um, Well, the growth of hair represents that period of consecration. Every day the hair grows, it represents that period of his abstention. It's interesting, years ago we had some allergy issues in our home, and so my wife took fourth-inch to half-inch clippings of our son's hair and sent them off to a lab to be analyzed. And it's just fascinating that they were an accurate index to their lives in the previous few months. Not that the Nazarite bow you know, has any science behind it, but the analogy is there, that the growth of hair represents the most recent period of time for the one who takes the vow. Now, because his unshorn hair represents that period of separation, that means that the Nazarite's crown is going to be the focus of his consecration. And that will become evident in a moment. But thirdly, the Nazarite must also abstain from defilement from death. That is verses 6 and 7. And we read that even for a near relative, whether father or mother, Uh, Whether for a brother or sister, he must not be defiled by death. He must not become unclean. Purity laws such as this are ceremonial. It means they're the Lord's catechism. They were meant to teach something. What does abstaining from the defilement of death teach us? Well, put simply, it reminds us that God is the fountain of absolute life. And holiness is all about absolute life. And God's absolute life must consume anything tainted by death. And so you cannot approach the God of life stained with sin and death. Just like a a fire must consume dry, withered leaves, so does God. Must he consume in his absolute life anything tainted with death. And now this third separation, you can imagine, is, is the polar opposite of the first one, whereas refraining from wine um, enables the Nazarite to put into perspective the great highs of life. Here we have also the deep lows of life are put within the broader perspective of knowing God. Even our deep sorrow and mourning is subsumed under this higher pursuit of knowing God and drawing near to him. Now, what happens if you have a Nazarite minding his own business, as it were, and someone suddenly dies next to him? That's what the middle section of this legislation is about, verses 9 through 12. And the text puts emphasis on this scenario where there's a setback in the Nazarite's vow. Someone suddenly dies near to him. What can be done? Uh, And those verses basically uh, explain three steps. First of all, his hair must be shorn away from his head. The hair representing those days of consecration, because his hair was defiled, that means that those days were also defiled. They don't count anymore. Um, they, They cannot be rendered unto God. 
Secondly, the Nazarite needs to undergo, undergo a rite of cleansing. And so there's this uh, ritual, the waters of cleansing that we'll come back to, that he undergoes and that purifies him and it allows him to make a new start. And the period of separation starts all over again from that point. We also see that in this procedure of cleansing, he also needs to offer sacrifices of atonement. Now, before we leave the way of the Nazarite, let me point out that one of the great keys to understanding the Nazarite vow is the figure of the high priest. Uh, There are remarkable parallels with the language of the priestly vow and that of the high priest. There's a lot of parallels between the Nazarite and the priesthood in general, but what's fascinating is that strictly those parallels are with the high priest himself. So let me just give you a couple of these. Both the high priest and the Nazarite are regarded as, quote, holy unto Yahweh. And as you know, the high priest even has the crown that reads, holy unto Yahweh on it. Both have wine and strong drink restrictions. Both have hair regulations. Now, they're different regulations, but nevertheless, they both have them. Both also have uh, restrictions from being polluted by death. And this is where the Nazarite's restriction, his, his needing to avoid defilement by death, surpasses that of the regular priesthood and is comparable only to the high priest. A regular priest can attend the funeral for his mother or father. But for the high priest, his calling is so high and so sacred, so necessary for the nation, he cannot. And here the Nazarite, for a limited period of time, is comparable to the high priest. Also, in both cases, the high priest and the Nazarite, they are both said in Scripture to wear a crown. And that crown, in both cases, signifies their holy status. Now, it's going to be translated differently for the Nazarite, Uh, Some four or five times in the Torah, we're told that the high priest's crown, his literal crown, but it's Nazar, it's where we get Nazarite from, uh, is on his head. And here in number 6-7, we read that his Nazar, it's translated there typically, his separation to God is on his head. Uh, But the language is remarkably similar. And so when we step back and take in these comparisons, we see that through the Nazarite vow, any Israelite, male or female, can aspire to the holy status of the high priest himself in nearness to God. God says, you want to draw near to me, but you can't do it without holiness, right? Holiness, when it relates to anything except God, means belonging to God. You want to belong to me? The door is wide open. Anyone among the Israelites can become as holy as the high priest himself. And so the the Nazarite is one who voluntarily embraced Israel's calling to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation, to be God's segulah, his special treasured possession, and to live unto him this life of consecration. So that's the way of the Nazarite. Let's turn now to the worship of the Nazarite. That's going to be verses 13 through 21. And we see that the Nazarite vow culminates in worship. This is tremendously significant. We often concentrate on that period of time and kind of read over the end. But the end is the purpose. As we'll see, worship is the goal of the vow. And I'm going to make a few observations about the worship of the Nazarite. First of all, the Nazarite's worship at the culmination of his vow, could only take place in the land of Canaan. 
In verses 13 through 17, we have this lavish set of sacrifices. I'll uh, give it to you in the procedural order in which they would have been offered. First, the ewe lamb as a sin offering, then a yearling lamb as a whole burnt offering, a ram as a peace offering, and then these, we read, were accompanied by a host of grain and drink offerings. And it's this last set of offerings, these accompaniments of grain and wine that could not be offered in the wilderness. These, uh, this was worship that was looking to life in the land. In the wilderness, there were no grains, there's no wheat or barley, and there are no grapes in the wilderness. And so the first possible fulfillment of a Nazarite vow where he can worship God would be once the Nazarite entered the land of Canaan. A second observation, we need to address this issue of the sin offering in verse 14. Why must the Nazarite offer a sin offering? This may not seem like a, uh, an outstanding uh, question to ask or something that your mind flagged as Dr. Master read the text, but yet this was a question that perplexed and engaged medieval exegetes, and particularly in the, the Jewish tradition. So we have Maimonides, the, the great Jewish philosopher and rationalist, and he said the sin offering was for the sin of entering into the vow in the first place. He said, God didn't create us to be ascetics, but to enjoy the good things of life. And he needs to repent of that sin and be cleansed. Uh, and a lot of Presbyterians give a nod to that one. But then comes along Nachmanides, known as the Ramban. And he's a bit more of a mystic. And he says, no, 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 it's the opposite. The sin that needs to be atoned is that he wants to leave this period of the Nazarite vow, that he wants to return to the world and the pleasures of this world. Well, as it turns out, neither one of these views is correct. The, the real consensus now is that this sin offering functions for the sake of general atonement, uh, which is a, a, a requirement for the ordination of people. So we find, for example, for the ordination of priests in Leviticus 8, that there were sin offerings that were sacrificed to raise them up to a greater level of sanctity. We also find in Numbers 8, for the ordination of Levites, sin offerings were offered to raise them to a higher level of sanctity as well. And so that's what's going on here. The sin offerings, general atonement, effected a higher level of sanctity for the Nazarite, and this was a prerequisite for some priestly service, which of course begs the question, what is it? What is this priestly act of the Nazarite for which he who is already as holy as the high priest needs to have this general atonement? And it really is remarkable at the culmination of the vow, the Nazarite performs an act that's so incredible, so unexpected, and even controversial that many commentators even deny it actually happens. What is this great act? Well, that leads us to the third observation that we'll find um, this great act of the high priest. By offering his hair on the altar, the Nazarite is symbolically offering himself as a sacrifice to God. In verse 18 is where we read this. Then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tent of meeting. And here's the controversial part. He shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the altar, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. Did you get that? Friends, nobody 
approaches the altar of burnt offering except for the priesthood of Aaron. And we're talking on the pain of death. Not even Levites who are not of the lineage of Aaron are able to approach the altar of whole burnt offering. And here we read that the Nazarite, a male or a female, gathers up the shorn hair and ascends the steps of the altar and draws near to the sacred fire of God. It's remarkable. And this, again, is what the vow was looking to, this great, uh, amazing moment. Well, the Nazarite is not only a priestly officiant, he is also, as it were, the offering itself. By offering the hair that represented his own life, it is as if the Nazarite is sacrificing himself on the altar. Having dedicated himself to God, he now offers up that gift unto God on the altar. And this is critical to grasp. The period of separation itself, while of course it involved daily self-denial, that itself was not the sacrifice, at least not yet. The period still needed to be offered up to God on the altar. And this worship, where the Nazarite himself is the sacrifice, this explains the separations. Priests are not allowed to officiate at the sanctuary while drinking wine. So there, there goes wine. But also, you cannot offer unto God something defiled. That's why if someone dies next to him, he must be cleansed, shear off his hair, and start all over again. Because that sacrifice is no longer unblemished. And so everything was looking to this. Worship is, is, is the, the north star of the, the Nazarite vow. This is really the starting point of it all. The Nazarite offers himself up to God. That whole period of forsaking the things of this world, not being able to enter in fully into the engagements of this life, whether the highs and the joys or even the lows and the deep sorrows of the community, all of these things were looking toward this moment where he would offer himself in this amazing act of worship in this sacrificial act. The long locks of hair which grew steadily day by day encapsulate his daily self-denial, forsaking the pleasures of the world for God, his daily consecration where he pursued God and the life that glorifies God. And now through the altar fire, he sends that life up to heaven as a pleasing aroma unto the Lord God. And again, friends, this is the starting point. The Nazarite is a person who one day thought to themselves, reflecting on the goodness and the glory of God. And they said, what can I offer the one who made me? What can I render to the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Philo of Alexandria, he was a contemporary uh, Jewish man, uh, contemporary with, with the Apostle Paul. He wrote these beautiful words about the Nazarite vow. He said that no longer having anything else with which to display their piety, the Nazarites then consecrate and offer up themselves, exhibiting, he says, an unspeakable holiness and a Godward love. He says the vow is fittingly called the great vow for Every man is his own greatest and most valuable possession. And even this he now gives up to God. 
With good reason, it's been remarked that the Nazarite vow, this culminating worship, is as close as the Israelite cult comes to human sacrifice. So how can we not turn our thoughts to the Lord Jesus Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself up to God? But what we learn from the Nazarite vow is that he wasn't just offering up his blameless self at that specific moment. Which, of course, he was blameless. His humanity was blameless. But he was offering up his entire blameless life unto God through the cross, through the eternal spirit of God. Every gentle obedience to his mother, every time he turned the other cheek, every time he suppressed his own bodily desires to get up early and commune with his heavenly father, every time he freely accepted the spitting upon his face, this entire consecrated life from womb to the cross he offered up to God. This is what Bernard of Clairvaux means when he says, God is to be loved without limit. Now, one final observation about the worship of the Nazarite is that it culminates in a fellowship meal, which would include the partaking of wine. This is what the peace offering represents. The peace offering is the offering where God gives back some of that consecrated meat back to the worshiper, in order for him to have a meal with his family and friends in the presence of God. And verse 20 tells us that the Nazarite may now drink wine. And so we have to understand this limited time of separation, of, of um, restraint, of abstention, was looking forward to this time of communion and fellowship with God, to enjoying a fellowship banquet with family and friends in the presence of God in the land of Canaan with wine. And so we've looked at the way and the worship of the Nazarite. And before we move on to the wilderness soldier, let me point out, it's basically the structure of this chapter, the threefold uh, movement of the Nazarite vow. You have, first of all, an undefined period of separation, privation of abstention. Secondly, we have a setback requiring cleansing from the defilement of death and a new start. And then thirdly, we have fulfilling the vow with worship in the land, including grain and drink offerings. And now then, let's consider together the wilderness sojourn of Israel. And really what we're talking about here is chapters 11 through 25 in the book of Numbers. The very central section of Numbers is the part that narrates Israel's journey from Mount Sinai until the plains of Moab in chapter 25. Now, it, as many of you have read those chapters, you know it's a lot more complicated than that, and we'll touch on that in a moment. But let me point out that these laws, purity laws numbers 5 and 6, we've looked at the Nazarite vow, these laws were given to Israel right before they set out to this wilderness sojourn. And so it prompts the question, how should Israel approach this sojourn in the wilderness to the land of Canaan. And the first thing that, I, that needs to be said is that there's actually two paths that the Lord set before Israel in these purity laws. There's the Nazarite vow path, which we've looked at, that's number six. But there's also the path of the straight woman, that's numbers 5, 11 through 31. And we can't take the time to read through it and analyze it, but let me just say that these are opposite paths. The Nazarite is one who forsakes 
the pleasures of this world to pursue holiness, a relationship with God. Whereas the straight woman is one who strays from her marital relationship. She strays from her husband for the sake of the pleasures of this world. And there's a lot of uh, similar language in these two laws that call us to interpret them together. You know, I don't want to inundate you with details, but let me give you two examples. One is uh, we read in Numbers 5:18 that the woman's hair is loosened. It uses a unique Hebrew word, para, there. Well, that's the same Hebrew word used for the Nazarite's locks of hair. We also read that when the strayed woman is found to have been defiled by another man, that part of the result is her thigh falls. And similarly with the Nazarite, although most translations won't give you this, uh, when he is defiled by a corpse and he has to shear away his hair, we are told that the previous days fall. Very similar language. And there are other things we can look at, but more deeply, the language of the strayed woman ritual is picked up by the prophets of Israel later on in their accusations against Israel's spiritual harlotry against God. In fact, one Cambridge professor recently wrote that the strayed woman as Israel is the literal interpretation of this ritual. He said, that is the point. And he gives us all of, of the, the language of the prophets. You know, when God mixes his cup for Israel to drink down to the dregs, the cup of his wrath. When she commits spiritual harlotry time and again. And we'll come back to the resolution uh, of the strayed woman. But remember for now that the Sinai covenant is likened to a marriage covenant. Where Israel uh, entered into wedlock with Yahweh as her husband. She to be the bride of Yahweh. And so, you know, as another commentator wrote in Numbers 5, the marriage relationship of the man and the strayed woman uh, symbolizes the relationship between Yahweh and Israel in the Sinai covenant, just as in number six, the Nazarites epitomize the nation's holy calling. So before the wilderness sojourn, the Lord set these two divergent paths before Israel. There's the path to death in the wilderness, and then there's the path to life in the land of Canaan. Israel could choose to stray from Yahweh, her covenant husband, into spiritual harlotry and no destruction. Or she can look at this time ahead before entering the land of Canaan and say, I'm going to consecrate myself to pursue Yahweh closely in the wilderness. He's got so much good waiting for us in the land, and I'm willing to give up the comforts of this life to follow him to that land. You know, Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 1, 2, it's about an 11-day journey. Now, that's apparently in the ancient world the way that you signify distance is the time it would take for the typical caravan to travel. So even if we say, well, for these thousands, you multiply it times two, three times, we're talking a matter of weeks. And even in the book of Numbers, you know, they leave chapter 11, they're there chapter 13. Short period of time. How should Israel approach this wilderness sojourn? Well, to develop this idea, let me return to the broad structure of the book of Numbers. I mentioned that chapters 11 through 25, that's the wilderness sojourn. Then the last third of the book, chapters 26 through 36, 
It's all about life in the land. They're in the plains of Moab. The journey is over. There's no grumbling. There's no punishments. There's no death. It's all about life in the land. And what's fascinating is that once we pass chapters 26 and 27, which are all about matters related to the census, the first time the book actually turns and sets the gaze of the reader upon life in the land of Canaan, what would you think the priority is? We get chapter after chapter about the worship of God and specifically focusing chapters 28 and 29 on the sacrifices required to worship God, including the grain and the drink offerings. And then it's fascinating that the the second to last verse in chapter 29, God says, these are the sacrifices you shall offer unto me beside your vow offerings. And that little verse forms a bridge to the next chapter. Guess what chapter 30 is about? Numbers 30 is entirely about the need to fulfill one's vows to God. It's all about the fulfillment of obligations, oaths and vows to God. And again, I don't want to inundate you with details, but these three chapters are one package unit. They're framed on either side with references to the death of Moses. And so you have the wilderness soldier in this period of deprivation, 11 through 25. And then after that period, you have the worship of God and the fulfillment of vows with the grain and the drink offerings. We begin to see the pattern of the Nazarite vow. Well, someone says, what about the setback requiring cleansing from defilement? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Numbers 19 is the transition from the old first generation to the second generation, the new generation. And you recall that the first generation is judged by God. They rejected the good land. The scouts came back, 10 of them, and they actually uh, blasphemed the land spoke ill of the gift of God, and so God judges the people, and they're going to die 40 years in the wilderness, and specifically their corpse will fall in the wilderness. Well, in chapter 20, the second generation arises. It opens with the, the, the time stamp of in the first month. doesn't tell us first month of the 40th year. It's the 40th year. It just says first month. It's about a new beginning, a new start for the second generation. And right before that, in the transition from the first to the second generation, we get the wonderful chapter 19, the famous red heifer ritual. What is the red heifer ritual about? To put it simply, it's, it's the recipe for the waters of cleansing, the only waters by which anyone may be cleansed from the defilement of corpse pollution. And so it puzzles commentators. What's it doing in chapter 19? It really belongs in... Number six, in fact, you could even push it further back to the leprosy uh, laws in, in the book of Leviticus. Well, maybe it's in Numbers 19 to show us that the wilderness sojourn is being given according to the paradigm of the Nazarite vow. Now, I have a, a lot I could throw at you. If there's a lull in the Q&A tomorrow, which I doubt there will be, you can ask me, there's, there's one other really significant section in that wilderness sojourn that relates to the Nazarite vow, uh, but uh, I'm going to bypass that and just come back to this question. How should Israel have approached the wilderness sojourn to the land? Again, keeping in mind it's an 11-day journey, a matter of weeks. But note also, as I've mentioned before, there are no grapes to be found in the wilderness. 
And that might seem like an irrelevant remark or random remark to you, but there's two things that say otherwise. First of all, Deuteronomy 29, 5 and 6, the Lord says to Israel, I led you 40 years in the wilderness. You drank neither wine nor strong drink. Now that collocation of terms in the Hebrews, four terms that come together only appear, Deuteronomy 29, 6, and in the Nazarite vow. But we can just stay in numbers. What specimens of fruit did the scouts bring back from the land of Canaan? Huge clusters of grapes, so heavy that they needed to be carried on a pole between two men. And again, without turning there, you can turn there yourself in Numbers 13. I think it begins in verse 23. There's a whole section devoted. The, 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 the main view we get through the eyes of the scouts in the land is the Wadi of Eskol. It's the only place that's named by the scouts. Why is it named Wadi of Eskol? Because there they found the great cluster of grapes. And it's also the last section before the scouts return. In all these ways, Numbers 13 is pushing this uh, front stage, center focus. The message is, look, God has good things for you in the land. God has things and joys and pleasures you cannot imagine. And from that perspective, let's look back at that wilderness sojourn and see how often Israel not only despised, but questioned God. Oh, he's so miserly. He brought us out in the wilderness to die, to kill us. That's what he's doing. And this is our life, friends. God has good things for us, waiting for us in the land. Well, how did Israel do? And we can go chapter by chapter. I'm going to spare us and just look at the beginning and the end of the soldiers. So chapter 11, chapter 25. Chapter 11 opens up with Israel complaining against God. The word that the Lord uses in Numbers 11 is that they have despised Yahweh. Why? Because in the wilderness, they want the fish, cucumbers, leeks, and whatever else they used to eat in Egypt. They're not willing to sacrifice for 11 days. And so they say, who will give us flesh to eat? Oh, God gives us manna. We want Pharaoh. That's how it begins. How does it end? In Numbers 25, and now we're talking about the second generation. At Baal Peor, they commit harlotry with Baal. The daughters of Moab come out and entice them into sexual adultery and idolatry. And the text actually reads that Israel joined themselves to Baal. Friends, let me tell you that the word Baal means husband and master. In fact, in Isaiah 54, I think it's verse 5, we read, Your maker, talking about Yahweh, your maker is your husband, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Your maker is your Baal. And the verbal form of that root is used frequently throughout the Hebrew Bible to refer to being given in marriage. So this is the author telling us that Israel chose the wrong path, the path of spiritual adultery, the path of the strayed woman. And it's devastating. God, through the prophet Hosea, looks back to this time and he says something so amazing. He says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. And then almost immediately he goes on to say, 
But at Baal Peor, Numbers 25, Israel separated themselves to the shame. That word separated is the word we get Nazarite from. They consecrated themselves. It shows God has this whole theology in mind through Hosea. They dedicated themselves to Baal. It's devastating. When you go from the perspective of Yahweh, he says, I found Israel in the wilderness. It, It was like finding impossible choice fruit. Wonder of wonders in the wilderness. Suddenly clusters of fruit. It's as if the Lord is saying, I don't need the land of Canaan. If I'm with Israel in the wilderness, I have everything I want. And then you go to Israel. And they despised Yahweh and separated themselves. It's as if they took a Nazarite vow unto Baal. How did they survive the wilderness then? That's Numbers 25. Well, we'd have to go back to Numbers 5. Again, we didn't read it. But for those of you who have, how is this matter of a straight woman resolved? Well, the whole ritual begins when her husband is filled with the spirit of jealousy. The root for jealousy occurs ten times in Numbers 5. In fact, it's called the law of jealousy. And it's misunderstood as sort of a whim. No, it's not. This is something divine. The spirit of jealousy fills the man and causes him to bring his wife to the tent of meeting and before the Lord. Well, how is this devastating spiritual harlotry resolved in Numbers 25? We read that the young priest Phinehas is filled with Yahweh's own jealousy for his bride. It's the only other place where you get, again, the language of jealousy showing up. God says it multiple times. In fact, he rewards Phinehas with a covenant, an everlasting priestly covenant. It's his lineage that's going to serve at the Jerusalem temple. Why? Because with my jealousy, he was filled with jealousy for Israel. And so the young priest makes atonement repairing the covenant marriage. And yes, 24,000 people die. This is the fierce love. God's wrath is fierce precisely because it springs out of his well of love for his bride, Israel, in the wilderness. Now, friends, how about you? You know that we are the church in the wilderness. And friends and young people, good to see you. Let me tell you, this life is fleeting. The Bible says it's but a breath. This life is nothing more than an 11-day journey. It's so short. It's over so soon. But ahead is a life of bounty and glory and a new heavens and a new earth where God has promised us untold goods that we could not even imagine. Life in abundance, in fellowship with the people of God, face to face with God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is all ahead of us. And this life, your life now, is but a fleeting sojourn to that land of glory. So let me ask you, how have you been approaching this wilderness sojourn? Are you given over to grumbling and discontentment? Are you 
bent on pursuing the things of this world? Are you given to the things of this world, bent on pursuing the pleasures of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the pleasures of all that this world has to offer you? Is that your goal in life? Is that what causes you to stumble over and over again? Because you see, the Nazarite vow teaches us that what we offer unto God is our life. Now, yes, our life is hidden in Christ that makes it the fragrant aroma. But friends, what you offer back to God is your life. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about something greater. I'm talking about worship. Paul, the apostle of grace, is first in line to say when the Lord returns, he doesn't want to be ashamed. He wants to offer his life up to God, his scars up to God more than anything. He wants to offer up the church. He's constantly calling the church to bear fruit because he wants to offer a field filled with fruit to God at the return of Christ. What you offer God is your life, your life Every day of life, you're preparing this offering that you will render unto God on that day. And remember, again, your life is of limited duration. It's a fleeting moment. The Nazarite vow calls us to offer our lives up to God. So many ways we can apply this. If you're being called by God to be a pastor or a missionary, answer that call. Or perhaps you are a pastor, but God is calling you to greater consecration. To give yourself less and less to the entertainments and the politics of this age. And to focus in a more devoted manner on the means of grace, the preaching of God's word. To consecrate yourself for the sake of awakening that same zeal in the life of the people of God. But this is for everyone. Whether you're called to be a banker or a homemaker, live it unto God. Set your life apart unto God. Consecrate yourself to God. And perhaps there's someone here tonight who is saying, it's too late for me. I've made a mess of my life. You haven't just had a setback, but you have plunged into heinous sin and you know yourself tonight to be defiled. Well, it's my great privilege to tell you, friend, that there is cleansing with the Lord Jesus Christ. His blood can wash the foulest sinner clean. Just turn from yourself, from your sins, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Cleanse me and give me your spirit that I may walk in your way and live the rest of my short fleeting life to the glory of God. He will not turn you away. Consider the life of the Apostle Paul. He hated the church. He persecuted Christians. But Christ took him. He cleansed him. He recreated him. And thereafter, Paul lived his life unto God, willing to suffer anything, any abstention. And he taught the church the same thing, didn't he? None of these things matter. What matters is glorifying God and building up our brother and sister. And Paul, of all people, loved to say, my life is being poured out as a drink offering. Friends, that's it. Your life is the sacrifice you offer up unto God. 
But there's one final thought that I would like to reflect upon with you before closing tonight, and that is the why of the Nazarite vow. Why would a Nazarite ever take this vow? Why would a person ever take uh, this weight of separation upon himself? What was the motivation? What had awakened this zeal in him or her? And the answer with Bernard of Clairvaux is God himself. We love him because he first loved us. I mean, just consider in the book of Numbers the goodness of God to Israel. He chose their ancestors, gave them all these promises. He heard their groans when they were groaning under bondage in Egypt. He raised up a deliverer, rescued them with a mighty hand. He delivered them through the sea, plunged their enemies to destruction. And then he carried them on eagles' wings to himself at Mount Sinai. He gave them his good and wise instruction. He gave them the tabernacle through which he would give them himself more fully. And then when they committed spiritual harlotry, he forgave them opening the fountain of mercy. And now he was ready to lead them into this good land to give them a good life of abundance and joy and prosperity. Oh, friends, the Nazarite vow was... It was but a weak thank you to God, a little token of gratitude to God for all he had done. And again, I say, what about you? If Israel had cause for pursuing Yahweh in the wilderness closely consecrated, how much more the church? In his book on loving God, Bernard of Clairvaux says that the church has the memoria Christi, the memory of Christ. This, this is the great stimulant to the love of God. And so I say, my friends, look to the cross. Gaze upon the crucified Savior, this friend of sinners. Gaze upon his suffering, his agony, the shame, the degradation, the dereliction, the colossal weight of the judgment of God cascading upon his head. Look to the Son of Man. Look to this man of sorrows. As he gasps out, why, my God? And as you gaze upon him, see the infinite love of God the Father, pouring out his wrath and justice upon the head, the dear head of his beloved son, so that he could pour out the streams, the rivers of cleansing and mercy upon wretched sinners like you and like me. So that the weak, the outcast, the wretched, the guilty might become sons and daughters of God. Royal, holy children of whom this world is not worthy. Yes, by his human nature, Jesus fulfills everything solicited by the Nazarite vow. But friends, we cannot stop there. We have to press deeper into the mystery of his divinity. What is the incarnation if not the reverse mirror image of the Nazarite vow? The Nazarite vow is humanity's reaching up to God. The incarnation is God stooping down on hands and knees to sinners. It's God descending low, bending down with basin and towel. 
The question isn't why the Nazarite vow. The question is why the incarnation? Why and how should you love humanity? How, God, should you love this miserable people fixed on splashing in the cesspool of depravity? How? And God's answer is my beloved son and him crucified. Dear struggling Christian, you have been loved by God without limit. Without limit. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is how God has loved us. But if we ask why, I for one cannot answer you. This is a mystery indeed. I can explain to you the logic of salvation, Cordaeus Homo, why the God-man. I can even take you to Ephesians and where it tells us that God chose us in love. But you see, friends, as soon as we turn our gaze, our focus to the love of God, then suddenly we're plunged into this immense and vast ocean without bounds, without horizon. There's no north, south, east, or west. There's no bottom. And suddenly we're endangered of being swept over with the currents of the fierce love of God. My friends, tonight, let the ocean of the love of God break in upon you until it breaks your heart open to look back at God and see in him Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the holy blessed Trinity, the fountain of love and life who has loved you with an everlasting love and then give him the mere token of your life in consecration to him. In a reverse mirror image of the Nazarite vow, we see that the Son of God forsook the glories of heaven, taking to himself a human nature, not for a set period of time, but forever. Why? He who knew no sin for your sake became sin. Why? He who knew only the blessedness of heavenly bliss For your sake, experience the curse of God. He who was rich for your sake became poor. Why? Why? He descended to the lowest dregs of humanity. He, the author and fountain of life, for your sakes, fully tasted death. Oh, my friend, you have been loved by God Without limit. Paul says that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. This memory of Christ, this is the memory of Christ that led Bernard of Clairvaux to sing. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend? For this, thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. Oh, make me thine forever. And should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. And this is what the Nazarite vow is about. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, would you seal these truths to our hearts by your Holy Spirit? Oh God, we praise and adore you for this everlasting love and pray that your Spirit would strengthen us to render back unto you our love through the Lord Jesus Christ. By his Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response, hymn 502, All for Jesus. great God, we thank you for this reminder of your love for us in Christ. We ask that you would, even in this hour, cause us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. We thank you for your spirit who is at work within us and in our midst. And we ask that he might continue to do his work even as we leave here this evening. Oh, Father, we ask this for the glory of our dear Savior, and we ask it in his name. Amen.